the Lord. The reading of today's morning is taken from Pauline's letter to the Philippian church, chapter 4, from verses 10 up to 23. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied that now, now, that I have, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Brothers and sisters, receive the reading. Well, Absalom, thank you very much indeed for that clear reading. Just need to disentangle myself here. <laughs> Good. Well, um, at the end of the service, we want to give you a gift. Um, it's a coffee mug with uh, SBBC on it, 10-year anniversary, and Philippians 1, 3, 6. Now, because this is going to be a collector's item, and in 100 years, it's going to be practically priceless, we can only give you one each. And what that means is that after the service, you need to go over there 
have your name ticked off and collect your cup. That's to ensure that you don't come back next week and get another. <laughs> anyway, that's what it looks like. Then um, each Sunday through October, we're planning something special on Sunday mornings to focus our thanksgiving for God's goodness for 10 years of St. Barnabas. And next Sunday morning, I'm delighted to announce that Bishop Frank Retief will be with us. He will be our preacher. Um, if you don't know him, uh, back in the day when he was uh, preaching at St. James Church in Kenilworth, he was dubbed by the press as the Billy Graham of South Africa. So you can be sure that you will hear the gospel clearly taught next Sunday morning. Can I encourage you, please, to invite your friends and family? Let's fill the hall. Uh, but now, let's have our Bibles open. Can we please stand for prayer? The writer to the Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Heavenly Father, we do ask that your living and active word would do its work in our lives this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. And do please have our Bibles open at the passage which Absalom read so beautifully for us a moment ago. Someone has said that there are essentially two problems with money. Uh, one problem is having it, and the other problem is not having it. Uh, and there is great anxiety to be had in both. Neither one makes it easy to share, and neither one makes it easy to give, which is actually the subject of our study this morning. Because the, the message of this last passage in Philippians is that gospel partners learn to share. So, as you've heard, we're finishing our series in Philippians this morning. I think it's been a profitable and encouraging time, hasn't it? Uh, each week we've been learning more about what it means to be a partner in the gospel. And over the last couple of weeks, Paul has kind of moved on from teaching us gospel truth, truth about Jesus, to practical application. Uh, so at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, we were reminded, weren't we, that when it comes to being in right relationship with Almighty God, our confidence lies not in our performance, not in our upbringing. It lies in the Lord Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And Paul says that is actually a cause for tremendous rejoicing. Then two weeks ago, we heard the call to keep pressing on in our walk with the Lord until
until that marvelous day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now, that's not going to be easy. Uh, the pressures of persecution, uh, false teaching, and disunity, those pressures that threatened the early church are still very much with us today. But when Jesus returns, he will transform this present messed up world into a perfect new creation. And that too is a cause for great rejoicing. And then in the meantime, Paul encourages us to, to press on in the local church in unity with one another and in prayer and in growing in godliness. And now in this final section of the letter, Paul turns to this, this subject of money. And there are two things we're going to learn this morning. And the first is this. Be content in the Lord. Be content in the Lord. Verses 10 to 13. Now the context here is that the Philippians have sent a financial gift 850 miles to Paul in Rome. Uh, so in verse 10, the apostle says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've re renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. A slightly puzzling verse that. Presumably the point is that it wasn't especially easy in those days to send gifts to another city. Uh, in the days before EFTs and take a lot or what have you, a gift had to be carried on foot by a trusted messenger. He would no doubt face many trials and dangers on the way. Indeed, he might not actually get there at all. But Paul wasn't anxious about that. So just to make sure there's no misunderstanding, he says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, what's Paul's point? Well, the point, I think, is he's saying my contentment is not tied to my circumstances. It's not controlled by my standard of living. See, he's not saying, you know, I was absolutely down in the dumps until your gifts arrived, but now they have, I'm happy and I can sleep again at night. He's not saying that. Because of verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Now, if you think about it, that is an extremely stunning thing for the Apostle Paul to say. Because he's in prison, he's on death row, he might be executed any day, and yet he can still say, I'm not in need. I'm actually quite content. If you look up the word content in a dictionary, 
you find words like uh, satisfied uh, or accepting the situation or desiring nothing more, nothing less. Can I ask, could you say that about yourself this morning? Could you say that you're satisfied? That you've actually accepted your situation? That you want nothing more, nothing less? Could you say that? Is that the way the world actually encourages us to think? Think for a moment with me about the case of Michael Jackson. In 2009, you may remember, Michael Jackson died. He'd had a massive heart attack. Uh, he was only 50 years old. But, of course, the underlying cause of his death was far greater than that, far deeper than that. Because whilst he was a very, very talented musician, Michael Jackson was never content with who he was. Uh, he wasn't satisfied with his appearance, you remember so he changed it. He wasn't satisfied with life in the real world, so he lived in a fantasy world, didn't he, of his own imagination. In fact, his ranch was called Neverland, wasn't it? Which is straight from the fantasy world of Peter Pan. Twice divorced, uh, he wasn't satisfied with normal adult relationships, so he chose the company of children and animals instead. As a musician, he was unquestionably very gifted. But he wasn't content with who he was. And that restlessness showed up in a careless attitude to money. His lifetime earnings were in excess of four billion US dollars. When he died, he left debts of over 400 million US dollars. He was a big spender. And when his wardrobe was finally sold off at auction after his death, just one of his jackets fetched over $300,000. What a contrast with the Apostle Paul. Uh, if he was lucky, Paul might perhaps have had one change of clothing in prison. His food was only the most basic. He may have had uh, one or two scrolls of the Old Testament and some writing materials, but he had no money to spend. He had no creature comforts to enjoy. But in spite of that, Paul can say, verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now just think about that with me for a moment, will you? Because Paul is saying there that contentment is not a matter of temperament. Contentment is not something that some people have because they're content by nature and other people, unfortunately, don't because they're not. No, Paul says contentment is a secret that needs to be learned. He says, I've learned the secret of being content. 
Now, friends, you know, sometimes Almighty God in his providence puts you and me in situations of need. And uh, one of the reasons that he does that is to train us not, uh, not to put our trust in things, but to put our trust in him. So what is the secret of contentment? Well, it's there in verse 13. I can do everything, he says, through him who gives me strength. Now, I think if we were to um, try and choose just one verse out of the New Testament that has been ripped out of context more than any other, I think verse 13 is probably a pretty strong candidate. Uh, You find it on posters in Christian bookshops or on uh, greeting cards with lovely puppies waltzing about in the long grass, uh, or on a fridge magnet showing somebody graduating from university. And uh, the implication, of course, is, well, I can sail through my exams without any revision because I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Uh, I can complete the Argus cycle tour without training because I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do the plumbing in the bathroom. I can service the car. I can run the two two oceans marathon because I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And you know perfectly well, that's not what the apostle means at all. Because in the context, I can do everything means I can live faithfully in every circumstance. I can live with plenty or with little, in good times or in bad times, Whatever the Lord asks me to live through, I can do it. Why? Because the Lord gives me the strength to do it. So friends, whatever pressures we face, whatever joys we celebrate, wherever the Lord takes us in life, we can deal with it faithfully as long as we are depending on him. So Paul's experience of contentment can be our experience too. You think about it, it's actually very similar to what we were talking about last Sunday morning. I wonder if you remember that. Do you remember last week we said that when we're anxious, we are to pray, and when we pray, the peace of God surrounds our hearts, rather like a garrison or a guard, protecting us and assuring us that we can stand firm in our faith because the Lord is very, very close to us. Well, here in the second half of chapter 4, the context is money. So glance ahead to the end of the section in verse 19. Verse 19, Paul says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that sometimes all of us might feel like we are emotional or spiritual or financial, no hopers. But spiritually speaking, if we're in Christ, we're married to a multi billionaire. And that, you see, means that all of our debts, spiritually, Emotionally, physically, relationally, all of them are covered 
by his glorious riches. And that means that everything that God has planned for us to do, we can do. He never sets the bar too high. He's always able to get us over the bar. And he arranges everything. The challenges, the blessings, the stresses and the strains, the plenty and the want, all of it to cause us to cry out to him and to depend on him and to find our satisfaction and strength in him alone. And friends, if that were not true, this church would not be here today. Now, I'm sure that um, some of us here this morning are feeling ourselves to be perhaps in a season of want. It might be a season of want of money or of work, but it doesn't apply only to money. Maybe you're single, and you're finding being single really rather tough at the moment. Or maybe you're lacking genuinely close friendships. Well, if that's you, and you find yourself in a situation of want this morning, this passage is calling us not to grumble, or complain, or give way to self-pity, which is so desperately tempting, but rather to anchor our contentment in the Lord. And can I say that it's only if we learn to do that when we're in want that we'll actually do it when we're in plenty. If we don't learn this when we're in need, then when we do have all that we need, we'll actually find we've left the Lord quite some way behind. And for those of us who are in plenty this morning, we've got to be careful. You see, it's so very tempting, isn't it, to tie our contentment, our happiness, to our circumstances and uh, to, to find our security in that. Everything in the media encourages us to do that. It's what the advertising industry is all about. But this passage says, please don't do that you'll only ever find your true contentment in the Lord. So that's the first thing this morning. Be content in the Lord. Maybe you don't yet know the Lord. Well, this morning would be a terrific time for you to turn to him and to ask him into your life. Secondly, second thing we need to learn this morning is be generous in your partnership. Now, we've been learning about partnership all the way through this letter. It is one of the great themes throughout the book. So it's entirely appropriate that Paul mentions it one last time in this closing section. So let me remind you right up front that if you are a gospel Christian, you are a gospel partner. And the language of partnership comes straight out of the first century world of business and finance. Uh, some Bibles like to translate the word in the original as fellowship. And while that's true as far as it goes, unfortunately for many people today, that word fellowship conjures up images of stale sandwiches and weak tea in drafty church buildings. That idea, of course, is miles away from what Paul's talking about here. 
Because in the first century, partnership meant part ownership in a business. And Paul deliberately takes that idea and he applies it to the local church. So here at St. Barnabas, the, the business that we are partners in together is getting the gospel out to people in Cape Town so that they become followers of the Lord Jesus. Now that includes financial partnership. And uh, the message in our, part, in our passage is that we are to be generous in our partnership. Now if you're reading this carefully, you'll notice there's a bit of a puzzle here. Because Paul has just said that his contentment is not tied to the Philippians' generosity. He's thankful for it. He's appreciative of it. Yes, he is. Look down at verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles, he says. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, which is where Philippi was, not one church shared with me, literally partnered with me, in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now you remember that Paul introduced this concept of partnership right at the very beginning of the letter. Back in chapter 1, he said, if you recall, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. And here in chapter 4, we're told what that partnership from the first day actually looked like in practice. So remember, will you, that Paul was a missionary church planter. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that sometimes he supported himself financially by making tents because he wanted to pay his own way. So, for example, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, we're told he wasn't a burden to that church, and he worked night and day not to be so. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. But at other times, people supported him financially, which is what the Philippians were doing here. They partnered with him. They became business associates with him, if you like, in the work of the gospel by giving to him financially. And that meant Paul didn't need to spend all of his time making tents and he could get on with the business of preaching the gospel. That's what verse 15 is referring to. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except 
you. Now, think about this with me, please. There are two types of work. At first, for want of a, a better way of putting it, there is work work. Uh, it might be paid. It might be unpaid. Uh, so you could be paid to be a bookkeeper or a teacher or whatever it is. Or you might be unpaid looking after the children at home. Either way, that is work work or what is sometimes referred to as creation work. But then there's, there's gospel work, such as sharing the gospel with somebody who's not yet a Christian, or perhaps building someone up who is already a Christian as you explain the scriptures to them and pray with them. Now, all of us here this morning are involved in work, and all Christians, without exception, should be involved in the second category of work, gospel work, every single one of us. Let me explain that. It's gospel work when you bring someone to an evangelistic event such as the one we've planned next Sunday morning. Um, it's gospel work when we talk to somebody about Christ in the office or wherever it is. It is gospel work when you come to home group during the week and you engage with the discussion. It's gospel work when you lead a home group Bible study. It's gospel work when you come here to church on Sundays and you make an effort to build real friendships with people after the service over coffee. It's gospel work when we share our lives together however we might do that, and we seek to build one another up in the word of God and in prayer. But here's Paul's logic. It furthers the cause of the gospel if some Christians are excused from work work and earning their living that way so that they can spend all of their time and all of their energy on gospel work. Do you see, do you see the logic of that? So we all do gospel work, all of us, but some of us are liberated from work work so that we can spend all our time doing gospel work. And it's not that one of those is more important than the other, but that's how it works half the time. And when we think about funding gospel work, we're not just thinking about the work here in Cape Town. For some years as a church, we've been giving financially to students uh, who are, are planting churches and serving in churches in other countries in Africa. One of them is running a crusade in Malawi this morning, thousands of people attending. And as the church grows, we want to do more of that work supporting people in financially, uh, financially in other countries in Africa, as well as, of course, helping people out in need here in our church family in Cape Town. So friends, when you hear the call of God from this passage to be generous in your partnership, that's what it's about. Christians in full-time work work give to enable others to spend all their time and energy on gospel work. Now, of course, the amount that each of us gives 
depends entirely on our different circumstances. For some people, it might mean starting to give for the first time. They've never done it before. Other people, of course, we understand are struggling financially and might not be able to give very much. But let me just say as an aside, what is so very remarkable about the example of the Philippian church is that we're told elsewhere in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 8, that they were extremely poor. And yet when Paul was in need, they sent aid to him again and again. So all of us, without exception, need to work out prayerfully before Almighty God how to apply this teaching in our own lives. Now someone will hear that, and they will say to themselves, I knew it, you pastors are all the same, you just want our money. Can I just say that if that's you, Paul is ahead of you. He's not in the slightest bit embarrassed about what he's saying because he says that the blessings of giving don't simply flow from the giver to the receiver. Look down with me at verse 17. Please fix your eyes on it. He says, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what might be credited to your account. And immediately, those of you who work in finance will recognize that that is extremely strange economics. It's actually the reverse of the economics we saw back in chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, if you remember, there was a credit column headed, My Past Performance and Upbringing. And do you remember that the Apostle Paul said that when he was converted... All of that had to be transferred into the debit column. He counts it as a loss because compared to knowing Jesus Christ, it's rubbish. But here in verse 17, Paul says that when Christians partner in the gospel and give to the work of the gospel, he says, listen carefully, what starts out as a debit, meaning a transfer out of my bank account so that there is less in it than there was before, spiritually that debit moves into the credit column of my life. And that's because Paul says the Lord credits the giver. Paul says he's looking for what might be credited to your account. Now don't misunderstand him. He's not talking about buying your way into the kingdom or giving as a work of righteousness. He's not talking about either of those things. No, the credit that he's referring to is God enabling us to enjoy the privilege of partnering together and experiencing the blessing of laboring together for the cause of the gospel. See, that is what the Lord Jesus himself meant when he said it is better to give than to receive. Better for who? Better for you, the giver. And it means, of course, doesn't it, that giving financially is both a basic discipline in Christian discipleship and 
a means of grace in the life of the giver. Now, Paul's not embarrassed to say that. Doesn't mean he's ungrateful either, verse 18. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So the financial support is got there. And then we have, as we close, this fascinating perspective on what God thinks about these financial gifts at the end of verse 18. Let's have a look at it. It's strange language, isn't it? He says, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Whatever does he mean? Well, that language comes straight out of the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are many references to fragrant offerings. But the first one comes in Genesis chapter 8. You don't need to turn to it, but I think it does explain what Paul means here. Genesis 8 describes what happened immediately after the flood. So I'm sure you remember that when Noah and his family emerged from the ark, they knew that God had saved them from his devastating judgment. Everybody else had perished on account of their wickedness. Noah and his family were no different, but God had saved them by sheer grace. And so Noah responds to God's saving grace with a burnt offering. And in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, we read this. When the Lord smelled the pleasing fragrance, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now the point is, you see, that the burnt offering was a way of showing God that because of his saving grace, you were committing your entire life to him with nothing kept back. Burnt offering consumed, I'm keeping nothing back. And Genesis is teaching us that when people do that, God is pleased. And here in Philippians, Paul says that when Christians give generously and sacrificially to gospel work, whatever that might mean for them, and it means different things for different people, it is just like Noah's burnt offering. And God is pleased both with the gift and with the giver. The gift is a fragrant offering, he says, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So let's leave this morning with these two big thoughts clear in our mind. Be content in the Lord. Be generous in your partnership. And when Christians are doing that, who gets the glory? Is it the church? No, it isn't. Is it the giver? No, it isn't. Look down to verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, when partnership is happening like this in the local church. It is all God's work. Because you see, only God can change a heart that is self-focused and fearful and discontent so that it finds satisfaction and contentment in him alone.
And when a person's heart is changed like that, they become generous in gospel partnership. And because that change is God's work, Well, let's have a moment of quiet as we reflect on this for our own lives, and then I'll lead us in prayer. So in the silence, let's think about these two areas we've learned about this morning. Let's bring our own lives before the Lord. Be content in the Lord. Maybe you really do want to be content in the Lord. But perhaps for you, the truth is that you are dissatisfied, discontent with your situation. We've heard God's call to be generous in our gospel partnership, just like the Philippians. So think before God about the ways you can support the work of the gospel as the person that you are and with the means at your disposal. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Apostle Paul, such a wonderful example for us. His gospel priorities are crystal clear. Thank you, Lord, that you taught him the secret of contentment. Thank you that he knew that whatever he faced, he could always trust in you. He could do everything that you called him to do because you gave him the strength to do it. Father, we pray that we would be the same. May we be content in the Lord. And Lord, thank you so much for the Philippians. Thank you for their generosity and the way that their support enabled Paul to continue his ministry. Far from being wealthy, they were a poor church. So we marvel at the fact that 2,000 years later, because of their generosity, we have your word in our hands this morning because Paul could continue doing gospel work. So we praise you for that gospel partnership. And we ask you to help us to be generous in supporting the work of the gospel. We ask that as these things happen, and as you fashion us into a gospel church with these priorities, we ask that you would get all the glory. And we ask these things for Christ our Saviour's sake.